Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams as we finish Book 10. Uh, Book 10 is on the nature of memory, and we did part of it a few weeks, a few months back probably, uh, or we released that conversation anyway. Uh, But here's our second attempt to finish off that book. Uh, We do have one more podcast that we hope to release here before... um, before the new year, um, and that will be on book 11. Uh, And then after that, we may have one more um, uh, extra podcast of me uh, as I uh, discuss a little bit of um, Augustine's confessions um, at another church, so I'll put that one up on book 6. But this one is on book 10. Um, And if you would, please, um, I'll put a link up to our Patreon account um, and uh, at the end of the year, um, actually, we're running out of space uh, to upload these podcasts. Um, so if you are feeling so willing, um, it'd be great uh, to, uh, if you would, wouldn't mind donating to our Patreon account. Uh, but if that's, uh, if that's not something that you feel comfortable doing, at least rating and reviewing us on iTunes um, is always helpful. And subscribing to the podcast. So subscribers um, help uh, build our base. Um, so... Uh, thank you very much for your uh, contributions and for listening. And uh, those of you who've done their ratings and review it, reviews, we really appreciate it. Um, so here is uh, book 10 uh, from the Confessions. I'm going to frame the conversation that I want to have <laughs> um, <laughs> a, a little bit. Um, and and then we, we can go into what each thing that you found most interesting. I, I'm going to give some sort of um, broad kind of consideration. So uh, about what book 10 is supposed to be doing within the larger work. Um, So why is it that Augustine spends nine books talking about his life and then one book about memory? Um, So I want, I want to have, I want to say a couple things about that. I actually kind of want, I want to reference one letter that he writes um, about the confessions and then we can go into what exactly he says about memory um, and why that's interesting to him. Um, so that'll be Trevor, the philosopher, and then Tom. I, I don't, re- I don't know if I remember or if you actually said what the part was that interested you. Uh, but I have we a few can, things. Yeah. Okay, so we can go to that next. All right. So um, I'm just going to start with saying that interestingly, so there's um, there's a guy called J.J. O'Donnell who did a famous um, commentary on the Gushin, uh, on the Confessions on Augustine's Confessions um, that was released about 15 years ago, um, but he says that book 10 um, is essentially uh, the beginning of a written ascent. So the part that we read at the end of book nine, where Augustine and his mother ascend to God and touch God and understand God, he says that the rest of the book is giving all people a way to do the same ascent. So ultimately the question that motivates Um, all of these considerations on memory and sense and whatever he goes on in book 10 is his way of groping for how to lead people beyond themselves um, to the God who is um, beyond it all, but also in it all. Um, And so it's ultimately a way, a very long way to get us all to understand the sort of mystical ascent of Ostia at the end of book nine. And really, the whole Confessions um, is just a way to help any soul ascend its way to God. Um, So any person who has a soul, um, this is the path um, that ultimately Augustine thinks you should choose to climb up towards your connection with God, which I think is 
fascinating as a way to think about what the point of the confessions is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one way to sort of um, reiterate that in a sort of simpler form, um, at the end of his life, Augustine sends a copy of his book uh, to a friend of his who he, I don't think he's ever actually met, but who knows through correspondence. His name's Darius. Um, and so this is about a year before Augustine dies. And he says, I'm sending you my confessions. And then he says, in those confessions, um, I give them to you so that you do not praise me, but what is beyond me. In them, believe not uh, what uh, in the confessions, believe not what others say about me, uh, but what I say about myself. In the confessions, pay attention to me and see through me what I was in myself. And if anything in me pleases you, praise there along with me, but not me, but him who I have wanted to be praised because of me for he made us and not we ourselves psalm 103 um, we destroyed ourselves but he who made us remade us but when you find it, uh, me in them pray for me so that i may not fail but me made perfect pray my son pray um, and so what he sort of says is anything that's good um, has its source in god um, and so anything that you see in this book that talks about me, you can see my failures and you can see how God has remade them um, ultimately to redound to his own praise for God made us and not we ourselves. So praise God because of me. So O'Donnell brings up this letter um, and says that that's the way that we should think not only about book 10, um, but really about the whole confessions. Um, which I think is sort of a, a fascinating way to then enter into this whole conversation. Why is he so concerned with the failure of memory and senses and, and all these other things? Where is God in one's senses is, is kind of the, one of the big questions. Um, but all right, so I'll let you respond to that. And then we could maybe turn to, uh, to uh, um, Trevor's uh, sort of more, probably more philosophical considerations about memory. Um, well, uh, so, so I have any thoughts on thought. that? Yeah, I have a little thought. It, there was a little note I made here, and it's going to be hard for me to kind of go back and forth because I lost my physical copy. So I'm on this iPad, right? Oh. So, so, but um, uh, the the one thing I I remember as I was kind of contemplating what he was talking about there is it struck me again this. You know, I know Augustine kind of comes out of this Neoplatonist background, right? <clears throat> um, which obviously yeah. has a serious impact, I think, well, I guess, I guess Augustine's, he did it all. So it's not, I think you can't just call it Neoplatonism, but at the same time, it obviously has a huge impact on the history of the church and kind of what I take to be kind of a, you know, basically a Neoplatonic Christianity, right? Um, you know, all this stuff that we've talked about in the past, stuff that N.T. Wright has written extensively about, you know, this, this, you know, a tendency to think of uh, the world, the material order, the flesh is bad and the spiritual realm. Yeah. And, okay. You know, right, right. But I don't think Augustine thinks that the physical is bad, but go ahead. So I'd, I'm going to have to go back through and look through it, but this chapter, it sure does sound like he's saying that repeatedly. Right. Um, he's like, saying repeatedly that it has its limitations, but he never, he, he repeatedly says in his sermons and other places, maybe not as much in this chapter, but he will repeatedly say in other places that what God made is good. Um, and so he, he well, never yeah, wants to also say that. Fallen, right? I mean, I, I, so the Falling thing and is, incomplete for sure. The thing is, is I'm not going to be able to tangle with you on what he said anywhere else. <laughs> 
Like I have yeah. no idea what he said literally anywhere other than in this book. So, because I've never read anything yeah. else of his, but, <laughs> yeah. but what I'm, I mean, what I read on, what I read on every page regarding what you're talking about is like a lament for how worthless the sense, the like the world that is reachable by the senses is and how unreliable the senses are. And as far as I can tell, essentially, <laughs> that, assent- that what he's saying is, is so our connection to God is going to have to be in the inner part. Um, and that just yeah. max okay. of Platonism. And, and it's something I've always wrestled with all the way back to the first time I ever heard about Gnosticism. I just remember thinking, oh, I can see how Gnosticism might be taken far but man, a lot of it just seems very Pauline, right? The wickedness of the flesh and the, you know, the the righteousness of the spirit. You know, I mean, those are things taken up, uh, you know, in the New Testament and that that Augustine seems to camp on. I'm certainly not accusing anybody of being a Gnostic or saying that they wouldn't have problems with things that Gnostics said and did, you know, just that it's really hard sometimes to see the... And like kind of the antagonism towards Gnosticism, given that I think there's a lot of it present in most of what Christianity just has taught over the last couple thousand years. Sure. Yeah, well, to the, so, I'll try one more time. <laughs> yeah. um, so I was trying to trying to respond to the sort of sort of pseudo Gnosticism or the hint of Gnosticism in Augustine, um, which I, I think is fair that he wants us to question the reliability of our senses. Mm-hmm. Um, that is true because the senses are unreliable. He thinks that there has to still be a way to come to God. Um, and, and it, you know, it's, he doesn't want it to be as unreliable um, but you know, the only, the only way that I can think of to like perfectly answer that is to, to say that he does go at the very end of book 10, like the very last part to say that Christ is the only, uh, mediator between humanity and God. Um, so it's ultimately that Christ becomes human, takes on flesh, that we have any participation in the divine. Yeah. Um, and so God does not reject the flesh. So Augustine does not reject the flesh either. So it's not a pure Gnosticism. It's not, and it's not a, it's not a, a, a heretical Gnosticism in that he would say that Christ did not take on flesh. Um, so at the very least, we should uh, say that 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 part is not uh, fair to to project on Augustine. Now, oh, to for what ex- sure, for sure. To Just, what, you know, for- I, I wasn't saying that. Yeah. To what extent he was more influenced by Platonism than? stoicism or maybe you know to use the old dichotomies to what extent is he more influenced by greek thought than hebraic thought you know maybe that's fair game but i should at least say um that that he doesn't he he's not a um you know not a heretical uh docetist or something no 100 percent. i i'm not i wasn't so much reflecting on i like that for me is true of uh, what you just said is true of essentially all of the church tradition that I tried to reference in kind of one fell swoop when I was talking about the nascent Platonism that kind of I feel like is so present in the church and has been. I certainly don't think that that I mean, obviously, most of church history, uh, I mean, not most of all of church history, your 
your dominant uh, leaders are going to affirm the physical death and resurrection of Jesus and all of those things. I'm just thinking about, you know, the there is this propensity to look at the flesh as bad. And as and when I say flesh, I mean, you know, that's the word as it's translated, at least in English in the New Testament. But I know my associations with that are my physical body and that the spirit, the inner part is like the part that um, is good, right? Like Paul says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, for instance, or, or something along those lines. And it just seems like you you see that same kind of thing reaffirmed. And so certainly not like that anybody is um, affirming docetism or um, Corinthianism or something along those lines, right? These these Gnostic, these heretical Gnostic doctrines that deny the death and resurrection of Christ. But just that that sentiment is present. And I've always kind of wrestled yeah. with exactly what to do with that, you know, that kind of. Sure. Sure. That's, I, I think, I think that's fair. I just want to, you know, I guess I just always want to put, put, put a little bit of a fence post up and say he does yeah, not fair. transgress the, <laughs> the bounds of orthodoxy sure, uh, as sure. far as at least his understanding of Christ is. And I would always say that he's just, he, he, it's not that he thinks that the body is bad, but that there is sinful elements. Um, and so that makes it sort of, um, at least incomplete. Um, and, you know, God touches us in our body as, insofar as God takes on our body. Um, and, and that's really important for, for Augustine. Um, so um, I guess we could move to Trevor. I mean, Trevor wanted to talk about memory. So um, I, do you have a place that you want to begin uh, with memory? Um, so, uh, okay, I had a few things to to rant about a little bit. Um, I am also reading this in a digital copy. So uh, navigating is slightly weird. So let's see. Um, oh yeah, so I guess starting at, I guess it's, see, I don't know if this is gonna be the same, but it's part three where it talks about the contents of memory um, or like it starts at paragraph okay. 12 if that's, the right yeah do you know what i'm talking about uh so uh, yeah mm -hmm, i think so um the grand is this the memory palace yeah this is yeah this is where we start to get into that um i i wanted to just i wanted to make a quick kind of fun epistemology note here um a actually where where i'll actually be starting is uh the paragraph 13 that starts with here uh -huh. all things are stored individually and by type according to their means of accession so um this this part's interesting he says that basically he kind of relays memories and sense data as corresponding to their input yep. you might think like the data has an entry point the typical five senses and thus it gets stored separately in this way at least this is the language he uses um like further down he says um though it is obvious which sense seized each and brought it in for storage who can say how these images are formed for when i sit in a darkness without sound i can recall colors at will uh without any sounds to cut across or jumble the visual image since sounds though they're stored in memory are kept in different compartments i can bring them up on call whenever i want to sing a song yada yada so this part about different compartments is really interesting because in um 
you might say that cognitive psychology itself is sort of recognizing this, but there's also literature about this in philosophy for sure, which is actually uh, called the thesis of fragmentation, which says that our memory, well, the, the actual thesis that our beliefs are fragmented, but it has to do with the fact that our memories must be fragmented. And so um, I thought this was just really cool to see because it's just always cool to see, uh, probably just because I'm nerding out a little bit about it, but it's cool to see contemporary philosophy uh, sort of already talked about a really, really long time ago. <laughs> so I, I thought this part was interesting because he's basically already saying there's got to be some sort of separation here and then a coming together so that the images can be formed that doesn't say how. Uh, and that's a lot like fragmentation. And that's actually how you could also, or potentially explain why we have inconsistent beliefs, yeah. for example. Um, so uh, that was just a quick note about that. I don't know if anyone else has anything else to say well, about that Well, I, I want, um, I'm not going to be able to pull up the <laughs> quote right away, but he does, he does, so he does some interesting things on sort of um, what you might call as like, philosophical anthropology, I guess, or maybe theological. Um, he says that we have an anima, which is our animating force, like all animals do. So at one point he says, well, all animals have a life force. I'm talking about something more. And that is in Latin, the animus, um, which is sometimes is translated as mind, sometimes is translated as soul. Um, but because we don't have, so he has like a four parts that he can talk about he can say we have our body we can have we can have our animal kind of life force uh which is anima where we get our word animal we have our animus which is our mind which seems to be where all these images are um and then sometimes there's a fourth thing fourth thing that comes in and out which is the spiritus which is typically for him the holy spirit um but is a whole fourth kind of thing but it seems that all of these images and all the things that Trevor was just describing, they come in through the body um, that is alive because of the anima, uh, but it's stored in the animus, um, in the sort of mind. Um, and, and Augustine, I'm not saying he's always 100% clear on these, uh, but it's always fascinating to try to figure out exactly what he's referencing um, and really what role does the, the spiritus, the spirit play? Um, because that's always, uh, it seems like that's usually reserved for the Holy Spirit, but somehow uh, Christians are actually animated by the Holy Spirit in addition to just the raw sort of natural anima, which all living things have. Really? That's, oh, that is really interesting. So it's sort of like, yeah, so, um, we've all got the nutritive soul and then the, animal soul and then he's adding like a spiritual soul that's and now i'm putting it in more aristotle type terms but that's that is crazy i i've never huh, never knew that that's yeah cool. and then sometimes he refers to them all poetically as the pectus the heart the mens the mind um or the core like it you know then it gets kind of hard to figure out all right is he speaking poetically here and exactly which one of those things is he referring to but. So is it for him, Chad, is it like a strict tripartite distinction, body, spirit, and soul, or body, spirit, and mind, or body, heart, and mind, or whatever? I mean... It's hard to figure out how strict it is. At one point, um, he says, aliud est corpus, aliud est mens. Or, I mean, excuse me, aliud est uh, animus. Um, so one of the things is the body, the other thing is the mind. 
um, and he does seem to make kind of disjunction. Um, and you, you should definitely put those on either side of some kind of, to use a fraught word recently, binary. Um, but, but how does that, how is that sort of unified by, I think he ultimately thinks because the spiritus, because the Holy Spirit is in all things, that somehow um, we can consider the body and the mind um, unified. But it's exactly hard. It's pretty hard to figure out how all four of those work all the time. Um, and, you know, where, what is, what is doing what, what is pulling what weight? Um, and, and I, and, and like I said, it, that gets really complex. Yeah. And, or if it, it maybe not even complex, so I, maybe the right word to say is he's confused himself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that this debate continues on in certain evangelical circles, right? Where there's a question as to whether or not there's just a two part two parts like a soul body or whether there's three and i've always struggled with if there's three what is the third <laughs> like i i feel like i can at least conceptually um comprehend the idea that there's an inner man and an outer man right but i've had a hard time conceptually figuring out what a third would be and this has also confused me when reading some of the early Christological disputes, you know, like um, about the hypostatic union, what the nature of Jesus was. I'm, I'm blanking the name of the uh, heretical doctrine, but the idea that Jesus was a, uh, he had an animal soul, I think, and a physical body, but he lacked something else. I can't remember, but it's like yeah. these break, these breakdowns confuse me because they're, they're just not categories that I can, that I have a concrete understanding of, of the distinction. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, that is uh, that is all fair. I mean, it's not it's not a hundred percent. Well, like what Peter just said on the Aristotelian breakdown, I have no idea what he's talking about there. You said three different soul parts. Oh well, that the Aristotelian part's easy, right? Because just if you have the sort of ability to just be like a plant or animal, and you can like just take in nutrients and do all the other things you need to live and this is all according to like ancient medical wisdom you just have a nutritive soul so that one's pretty simple um and then you have uh just the animal soul i'm pretty sure it's just literally if you have the yeah. ability oh, of self-motion right. um plus the nutritive souls so that one's easy that's why the animals can move around and then um now i'm not an actual aristotle expert so i'm there might be some distinctions here i'm fudging for, uh, you know, sorry, Dr. Ide, if you're listening to this, he's my, he's our Greek instructor here. Uh, but uh, the, then there's just the rational souls, typically the third one, that's just what the humans have now. But the thing is, I do know that um, at least in some uh, Platonist circles, which are Neoplatonist, sorry, neoplatonist uh, circles and they they basically borrow a lot from aristotle as well they do want to you got to give the animals some intellective powers so i think there's ways of doing that without giving them a full-blown rational mm. soul um so that's why there there ends up being like a lot more souls in uh neoplatonism um i know for sure and for example proclus because i'm studying proclus right now but um 
but yeah, so for Aristotle, though, I think it's basically just that three-part distinction, the the sort of nutritive, the rational, and the, the animal soul. So it's that so basically human is just rational animal you've got an animal soul well you've got all three but there's really no reason to give you in terms of like material versus immaterial you can locate the rational soul as immaterial um though some people read aristotle as a as a mm. physicalist still um there are they you know but though he does admit of an immaterial soul but really yeah there's no reason to have like a another immaterial soul unless you want to separate out the rash like parts of your rational soul in ways like i guess you can just kind of do it arbitrarily but i i also agree like i've never seen the actual like a good metaphysical reason to do it like i've never been given like an argument that some so and so case would be impossible or something like that to just for some reason believe in like a third immaterial yeah Part of people. Well, it's funny. It's well, old. The idea of a tripartite breakdown. I mean, like Plato had one in. Is it was it the symposium or the? It might have been the Phaedrus, where he des he describes the some person as a charioteer driving riding oh, horses, yeah. and he says that the body is like the chariot, the horses are the spirit, right, and the charioteer is the uh mind or soul um and the so what he defined as spirit was you know basically as far as i can tell like on a freudian breakdown the id right like the part of you that's like driving you you know um um the part of you that kind of like that gives you mental toughness and strength or not even mental toughness like you know, it's like, you know, you talk about spirited people versus spirit people with broken spirits, you know, like. Like the appetite? Yes, yeah. Well, partly appetites, but or... I think it's more. I always think of like Eeyore versus Tigger, right? E Tigger is spirited. <laughs> Eeyore is unspirited, right? Like Eeyore is very just like, but appetite would be a part of it. But it would be like, are you the kind of guy who gets passionate about things? Are you the kind of guy who gets who gives like his all to something that's spiritedness, you know, um, that's as far as I can tell how Plato mm -hmm. broke it down in either the fade. I think it's the fade. It's the Phaedrus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there, okay. I found the quote that I was in for in the confession. So 10, 14, 21, he says, um, he says the mind in physical terms, this is not surprising. The mind is one thing and the body is the other. That's the English. Um, so, but in the, in the Latin, aliud est animus, aliud corpus. So one is the, so one is the sort of mind thing, um, animus, and one is the sort of body thing. So it seems like there are two things. One is exterior and what is interior. Um, but then, uh, in another place, so I did a quick search and found this. So there's a, a, a work he calls on the nature and origin of the soul. He says, man is actually composed of three things, um, the exterior corpus, um, and then there's an interiore and then an intimo, um, there's an interior and then the most intimate part. Um, and so it's not exactly clear the, the spirit, the spiritum seems like the most intimate part. Um, which is sort of odd because usually, but not entirely, but that's usually, um, uh, associated with the Holy spirit, but sometimes with the animus, um, and then the anima would be the animal part. 
Um, and that might be the interior part that even animals have. Um, and, but anyway, it's just, it's always sort of muddled in some places. He wants to say there's two and other places he wants to say there's three. Um, and yeah, so it's, but it's just something to be aware of. That's kind of like, you know, it would give, it's what gives people like me a job, I guess. (laughs) Well, I do know one of the motivations and I learned this from Peter Adamson, shout out to his the history of uh, yeah, an amazing, without any gas. An amazing podcast. His <laughs> very good. Yeah, I remember that. Man, I should have re-listened to it, but I do remember him bringing up the fact that I did re-listen to these like not too long ago, but it was like a few weeks ago because I kind of want to just remember what he said about Augustine. I remember one of the episodes he uh, mentioned that Augustine was always yeah. trying to find like trinities in in uh or things in us that uh resembled the trinity so you probably know more about that chat if you yeah no i mean i well that's one way to say it yeah he's always looking for trinities um but uh or or trinity is just the basis of his thinking so he sees everything in terms of trinity because he's just so inherently trinitarian (laughs) is it does it have to do with the fact that See, this is what I don't remember. Is it is the motivation because we're made in the image of God that he wants to then also find? Uh, in us? Yeah, I think he just wants to see it as the like a basic principle of the universe. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I guess that's one motivation to have a tripartite yeah. view. But other but than that, anyway, I, so uh, yeah. let's yeah, um, yeah, go more so memory. Can I rant yeah. some more about memory. <clears throat> Okay, so just the part that I found interesting because I like the arguments and the puzzles, that sort of thing, automatically drawn to those parts, um, was I, I liked, so well, first I'll set it up. Um, first, he, he claims that basically if you remember anything that you can then trace back to one of your sense perceptions, then your memory's got to be a representation of that thing. So that's like one of his first theses. So what I mean by that is, so if you remember how something tasted, for example, I can, or, you know, I remember how this food was, and then that's going to relate to taste and taste is going to relate to the, the sense of taste. So my memory of it must be a representation because, and then what's his argument for this? Well, it's got to be a mere representation because if I can remember it, um, without actually even like re-experiencing it, I then I'm not I can't literally be remembering the thing itself. I've got to be remembering a mere representation of it. And he brings up examples of this. Like I can remember what something looked like in a completely dark room. Therefore, I must not be remembering w- literally the light of what that thing looked like. I've got to just be remembering a representation. So that's one way you can remember. The next, the other way you can remember, it seems, is you can remember, you can remember a thing itself. And he thinks an example of this um, is like numbers. And in general, I said abstract, abstracta, as people like to say, <laughs> but abstract objects, it seems, might be his general rule. But he, he mentions a few things. He says uh, axioms of mathematics. Uh, endlessly extensible rules of geometry, you know, things like this. Um, These things, he thinks you can remember the thing itself um, because seemingly it's an argument from 
elimination, as far as I can tell. Because he says, how, where, can you trace it back to a sense source? And he kind of goes through this dialogue of, I asked this sense perception, did it slip in here? And no. And did it come through this one? No. So it, I must be actually just remembering the thing itself. Um, so that, that part's kind of interesting. I don't know if had, anyone had a comment on that argument. I thought it was an interesting argument. He basically just goes through all five senses in a row and says, well, if I can't get it from there, then it, it just must already be in me. And this is kind of how he gets the, this is the Platonic thesis that we remember these things as first brought up in Plato's Mino with the slave boy. But um, I don't know. Did anyone well, have any I can, I mean, not even... Even... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, I don't mean to cut. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, all I was going to say is I've, I, I feel really bad about it, but whenever I read Plato or Descartes or I just have, I don't know, anytime I read any of any, any philosopher who essentially says that we have some kind of knowledge already in our heads, I just, none of all their arguments seem sophistry to me. I've never really felt like, it seems to me that the empiricists did a pretty good job of explaining how we can kind of piece together ideas um, without, you know, from experience, you know what I mean? And, and can abstract and create that stuff. I, I, I've never read good detailed arguments from, I think, people being rigorous on the subject where there's any back and forth. So I kind of, I don't know, I just kind of think whenever I read that stuff, I'm like, you guys just never read anybody who disagreed with you. Kind of works. Well, and what's interesting about that, and then I wanted to hear what you had to say, Chad, was it? it's funny that he does already mention that ability that you just mentioned, that the empiricists mentioned, which is basically your ability to take these things yeah. in and recombine them. Yeah, he acknowledges it. New yeah. images. He, he acknowledges it. So that, yeah. that it is a funny point. He acknowledges it, and yet he can't see how, for example, he's come yeah. to the number two, you know. Like, I, oh, I didn't just see two things and then have this more abstract notion of two. And in general, he thinks when I'm uh, remembering two, I'm not remembering an image or anything like that. And I'm going, I do. Like, when I think of two, I mean, I guess I can think of two literally on its own. But I normally picture the numeral yeah. that signifies two. Just when I'm, if, I, if I'm told to think of two, I, there is no thing I think of, <laughs> two-ness. Like, there's, I just... I know what people mean, but of course, if if anyone ever really asked, yeah, so so what is it? Well, I'm going to start referencing stuff. I'm going to reference things. I might, I guess, reference a, a set or something. I don't. Know, I can give a mathematical definition, but it's like, no, you're going to start talking about stuff at the end of the day. Like you're going to bottom out in things. So yeah, I yeah I agree. But oh, uh, I was so I was going to do. Chat? a couple of the things that I like to do, which is to just sort of provide context and, um, and also like bring in some other stuff that Augustine, uh, does say. So as far as like, you know, why is Plato able to say that we already sort of come into the world knowing certain things? Well, he believes in a preexistent soul. Um, it's pretty clear, pretty widely accepted that, um, Augustine basically once just assumed that that was true. Um, and, uh, especially early on. So maybe the first five, 10 years of his Christian sort of, uh, well, maybe probably, and probably before then too. So maybe sometime 381, 391, um, uh, maybe a little longer. Um, but there's probably about a 10 decade, uh, decade long worth of time, uh, that, that Augustine believed that that was the case. 
he rejects it because he basically learns that that's not what Christians think. Um, and so he says, okay, I can't, <laughs> I can't believe that anymore. Um, but yeah, it looks like his epistemology might kind of break down because he kind of still assumes it. Um, and, but, but what's really fascinating is, is there's some letters that he writes to Jerome where he tries to say, well, where does the soul come from then? Um, and you know, so if the soul didn't pre-exist with God, you know, how is it that sin is transferred? Um, do we, you know, do we get, does it come through sex? Uh, and he doesn't like that idea. Uh, does God just put it in? Well, then God looks like he's just putting in a sinful soul. So that whole question is just fascinating. So, but he, he knows that that's not right here. So he sort of treads on it lightly. Um, I, I think by this point, most people agree by this point in Augustine's life, he doesn't hold a preexistent soul, but somehow we still remember. <laughs> um, and th- so there's, there's sort of that going on in this whole uh, thing. But, but I will bring up my, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Rowan Williams, who says that Augustine is most philosophically interesting when he's trying, to, uh, trying least to be philosophical. Um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> which is, which is such a like a wonderful British way of explaining Augustine. Like so, sort of like what Trevor was saying. Like sometimes he says these other things that are not like dogmatic, but show that you know he has a kind of understanding that's beyond his time. Uh, but then when he has to make a very clear, emphatic statement, he just you know sort of draws on uh, the well-worn sort of Platonist. Uh, ideas uh, but you, you you can tell that he can suggest for for more than that uh but he doesn't quite know how to make it sort of um uh i don't, I don't know i don't want to say dogmatic but but he can't state it simply <laughs> yeah like it's it's a good it's weird because he gives a pretty clear argument kind of by elimination of going through all the senses but then and sort of looks like he's giving sort of a rigorous um criterion for how you can get how you can remember something but yeah then just sort of yeah at the same time just sort of fudges on some details when you when you really start to uh sort of drill into it but um yeah that so that part was interesting and then there was the puzzle of forgetting which i found kind of funny um and this, so this is an interesting uh, thing. So I, I just went through the distinction. There's some things we remember um, via rep- representations. Then there's some things we remember where we actually remember the thing itself. The other way we can have a memory of something, uh, or the, or sorry, the other thing that you can remember mm. itself is literally memory. He goes like, if, if I think of the word memory, I know what it means. So it must signify something. And so it must be in my memory. So memory can like look at itself. So this this part's kind of weird. He thinks that basically if a word uh, has meaning that he understands, there's got to be a, a literal thing that it's signifying. And that thing's got to have some sort of like mental location. Um, and that's what he, and this is how he gets into this puzzle about forgetting. Um, because, he, so he admits it of memory, but then he goes, so with the word memory, I must be able to remember memory, but then I also can remember forgetting. And this gets us this quote. He says, what can forgetting be but a lack of memory? And then how can forgetting be present for me to remember it when its very presence makes me lack it? All things we remember are in our memory. And since we must remember forgetting or we would not know what the word means when we hear it, then forgetting must be in our memory. 
It is there for us to remember. But its being there means we forget? Or should we say that forgetting is not there itself when we remember it, but only some representation of it, since its being present would make us lack memory? <laughs> Who can fathom such a thing or make any sense of it? That's, and that then when, is, okay, <laughs> can I just start to interrupt? But that's, that's one of those things that I just want to chalk up to uh, philosophers overthinking something that is not in any way weird or hard to understand. You know what I mean? It's like... It's like when I when I had a professor I, at BSU came out and told us that that we can't conceive of nothing because nothing is literally no specific thing. And I'm just like, dude, I don't know that we're talking in that way to begin with. I think we totally understand what we mean when we use the word nothing. I don't think the fact that if you say there's nothing in the fridge, that means that, you know, there's no thing literally you know what i mean like it's an unanalyzable concept no it's not it's anyway sorry anyway it's just the well, stuff it's, where i'm like yeah it, God, it shows on. so this i mean i might put this in the case of augustine being philosophically interesting um insofar as he shows that he can um he can use language in such a way to to show that there's more than just representation so sometimes he's uh, portrayed as a sort of simple, ostensive, um, or as, as, as a sort of, um, as a person who believes in like an ostensive, ostensive view of language. Um, our language is only the things that we can point to and say, this is that. Um, and so I can tell you what a table is because I can point to a table. Um, but this shows that he can do more than that. Um, he has a sort of a, a philosophical rigor that goes beyond something so elementary as far as philosophy of language is concerned. Yeah, it, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, obviously I'm bringing it up, so I think it's interesting because he does this thing where he argues himself into a position. And the cool thing is he's smart enough to see this, but then he, I wish I could do this in my papers. And then, but because of the, like the genre of the writing, he can just go, God, man, you've just done a crazy good job making us like, who knows what the answer is because- yeah. He, he gives no answer to this very puzzle he brings up. Uh, he, he does bring up, he goes, is there a third way to pose the matter? How about claiming I do not remember forgetting, but only a representation of forgetting? But then he, you can basically end up running his same puzzle, but with the representation, because there's got to be something there for it to represent. Now you're just in the same boat. Uh, he goes... The and then he just concludes it by just going, the scope of memory is vast, my God. And in some ways, scary. With its depth, its endless adaptabilities, yet what are they but my own mind, myself? Then what can that self be, my God? What is its makeup? A divided one. You know, and so he kind of comes, he just sort of concludes by saying, like, he is his memories in ways, like his memories are him. And... um kind of goes through a I guess a pretty typical platonic thing of you know really just saying um uh this this just is me well but he myself, but this right? is what I makes mean, him a, the sort th of this is what makes him a Christian um, <laughs> and this is one thing like to go back to book one of the confessions that's fun is he says the one thing that makes me like my beginning um who I am in a way my birth I can't remember 
Um, and, and so I have to take that on authority. Um, and so the, the, he tries to, in book one, uh, as in other places, motivate the sort of definition of theology that most people use, faith-seeking understanding. Um, so he says, I have to assume that I am born on faith so that I might understand more about who I am. Um, and, or, and really, ultimately, that's the way that it is with God as well. We, faith seeks understanding. So he's trying to motivate our uh, intuition about faith. Like, oh, yeah, we can we, – there's, there's one thing that's the, you know, the most critical aspect of our lives, which is our birth, that we take on faith. Um, and so it's not that everything about who you are is in memory or he is just his memories. He's certainly more than his memories. Um, and, and that's why he does the investigation in the first part of book one on babies. Um, cause that's nothing that he has memories of other than trusting in the authority of his parents. Yeah. So it's not that he is only his memories, and I shouldn't have said it that way if, uh, if I did. I didn't mean to. But I mean to say, like, he does come to this conclusion that, yeah, you are ultimately, when examining yeah. your own memories, you're looking at part of yourself. And that, and and that's kind of how he just he just sort of stops there, which, uh, yeah, so that, that part was uh, interesting to me. And then uh, this, my last thing I had to say about memory, which is, of course, the main question then. So we've seen the representations and then a couple abstract objects that get by plus forgetting and memory, they get, they don't get to be representations, but what else can you remember? Of course, God, it maybe, right? Uh, who knows? So where does God lie in this? So this is actually where I just have the question for you, Chad, since you've read everything else by him in the world, uh, we need to know because I, this part confused me. Um, I guess at paragraph like 35 ish, three starts to talk about this. He says, See what long ramble I have made through my own memory in quest of you, Lord, and I have not found you anywhere but inside it. Nothing about you, or sorry, nothing about you have I found but what I remember from the time I began learning about you, nor have I forgotten what I early learned of you, for in each truth I learned I was learning about my God, who is truth itself, nor did I forget that. In my memory then, you have been lodged from the time I first learned of you, and where I find you when I remember you and take delight in you, Take the holy delights your pity grants on me as you consider my deprivation. So here it seems like it's it seems actually like God is not merely remembered because you only remember he only remembers God from the time I first learned of you. So there's gotta be a, a learning. Now this could still be a pre-existent soul situation, could have learned about God. But then we get this weird in the paragraph 37, he says this weird thing. And I didn't, I couldn't really follow how he gets to this point. It seems like he's kind of like asking a lot of rhetorical questions. Like, so yeah, or you're just in my memory because you're in all my earliest memories. And then he goes, where, however, then did I find you to know about you? You could not have been already in my memory before that first learning of you. So where could I have found you for learning about you, but outside of me and within you? And then, I, so then I just got really lost. I'm like, so now he's locating his memory of God inside God. I don't know. And this is where I just completely lost it. Like I, I, I lost train of what he was saying. And so now I don't know where to put when within this whole memory scheme, I thought I had laid it out pretty well. Now I really don't know where to put God. 
And so I, I ask you, Chad, please explain. To me that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> my, my note uh, at the at the very end here, uh, he says, your ideal servants are those who no longer look, uh, no longer look to hear from you from the answer that they want, but instead what want what they hear from you. Um, and then it, the footnote says here, Augustine overturns the implication of his previous argument that God must be found within the self. Uh, <laughs> which I think is <laughs> so he just undoes it all uh, <laughs> and then... okay so yeah. that is so my feeling is uh, uh, apt okay man I am so glad you guys said that because I was bored reading that and started skimming <laughs> This was the part where like all my notes are. I'm I'm probably the opposite of you. I got bored during other parts, but this is where I highlighted the crap out of the passages because I was just like I was really trying to break it down because I thought, oh, this is like a really clear looking theory actually a little bit for for sections of it. So I thought like even if he's not clear, maybe someone could come up with a clear Augustinian type of epistemology here. But then, yeah, the, these were. I'm bringing up all the parts where the edges fray of his uh, theory, and the, and when I got to hear, yeah, well, it's, really it's an interesting lost, thing. So. I mean, I don't yeah. think I can, I'm going to be able to explain it perfectly because, as the footnote says, um, he's overturning his argument. Um, but but throughout um, throughout the first nine books, as far as like memories concerned. Um, he does say he does talk about the importance of hearing the name of Christ um, uh, while he was um, nursing, um, and and sort of it's like Christ, the name Christ has been implanted in him, and he's been searching for it ever since, basically because he was told it. Um, and so it, that doesn't exactly explain how he learned it, but it does say like. You know, there is this sort of element of he can even have it in his memory because someone has placed it there. Um, and that and that is so at the very okay. beginning of the Confessions, book one, he says that that's the job of the preacher. Um, right. So he quotes uh, Paul from Romans 10. How can anyone believe without a preacher? Um, there needs to be someone in whom God has given the the sort of the role the place of proclaiming god's name so that you can be found there um so that you can be in the memory so that you can be in that person for them to seek you and then find you um and so augustine has heard from a preacher um i mean it, it, interestingly the preacher for augustine i uh, o'donnell says about that part in book one he says we don't know who he's referring to is it ambrose um is it uh, is it someone else? Um, you know, you might wonder if it's his own mother. Um, his own mother says the name of Christ for him to find in his memory um, to continue to seek. Um, and, that, and that could sort of be the answer. Or that could not, that's not the answer to your question, but that is part of this like riddle um, is that you need someone who knows God already to plant the name of God in their mind so that they have something to seek. In, um, in, um, and so you could almost think of this okay. as like a chain of witness, right? Like part of um, part of apostolic succession and part of the, the sort of like the possibility of the church remembering God while on earth um, is that, you know, there's this continuous chain of people who have passed down the witness um, to um, God's coming on earth. 
Um, so there is always a memory, and that memory has to be passed down from preacher to preacher um, to then be proclaimed so that all can hear um, the name of Christ and then so look for the thing that is in some ways behind everything but never in that one thing, right? That's kind of what he says. God is not outside but inside, but in a way everything outside proclaims to you to seek more. So, but uh, mathematical objects or numbers and mathematical truths, truths of geometry, um, if I'm remembering correctly, these do end up being ideas. I mean, that's like, yeah, I mean, he does have a sort of more, those are somehow more true than what can be learned through the senses. Yeah. So, well, the reason why I ask is if they, I, I can see how the sort of model you just described is true of yeah those things we discover by the senses but then it it would seem as if um with the abstract objects i don't know why we just don't have a clear case of if if those things are remembered um even though we did bring up the caveat that he may just be somewhat not he just may have an incoherent model since he gives up the pre-existent soul theory later on in his life but without that aside it just seems like now we could he could just give a clear epistemology where the same way um i'm remembering basically the ideas in the mind of god then i am just remembering parts of god and thus i can just remember god and yet still i need maybe like grace and plus someone to tell me about god in order to um, access it because he does talk about how his memory is like this large cavern and it's sort of it he gives me this image of this right. like chaotically twisting tunnels here and there and there and that sometimes he tries to get things but just can't quite grab them and so you could there's room here for god to just straightforward be in that class of things that are uh remembered but remembered directly but only like given grace right. and maybe yeah i think he wants to have his cake and eat it like too. That. i, I think know. he wants there to be like he wants us to be able to grasp for something that's maybe more eternal and permanent like numbers um but he knows that we have to seek it in some sort of external world um where that's not self maybe not as self-evident as he as it should be or something like we're con confused and deceived because of our memory um, and so he wants to plant things in the memory to make us go to look within for the thing that's more eternal. Um, so there's sort of like oh, signposts okay. to hmm. you to go seek the, the other thing. Um, he doesn't want it to be content in itself outside. Um, he doesn't want it to be perfectly understandable and sort of cleared up from an external point of view because then you'd never have any reason to look inside. Um, so if it was, um, so if, you know, if your memories all come from the mm. things outside, um, you're, you're not going to be able to make sense of them all perfectly, um, without turning inside and then considering where there might be something that's more permanent and fixed. Um, that's, that's not subject to the vicissitudes of, of lost memory or, um, failed impressions or something like that. I'm not. Oh, okay. I'm not saying that that's necessarily like that's that. That's not going to satisfy a contemporary metaphysical philosopher, 
Um, but but I think that might be something like what he's trying to 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 do. Um, yeah, no, certainly. I it's more interesting. I forget the motivations authors have because that's the thing. I I know that I'm like, well, this is you know, he's a smart dude. So it's just I know that he's got to have some sort of motivations for why he's holding on to these views and doing this argument. So uh, that's yeah, that is really interesting. Yeah. Um, because I overlooked. So it's twelve fifty-five. Tom, <laughs> we did not. I don't think we've given you enough time. <laughs> Probably not, but that's okay. I'd like yeah. to to say it anyway. I think I think it's stuff we've somewhat addressed in the past. Uh, I would take a second to uh, uh, introduce our listeners oh, to your baby you chat. Hear? I'm sure they'll yeah. they'll, <laughs> they'll they'll uh, have met have uh, <laughs> you know. So and that's one of the reasons, listeners, why we have. Uh, had a difficult time, I think, recording in these last few months. There's been a lot going on in all of our lives. Uh, one of which is that Chad is a new I dad. Indeed. So, <laughs> which congratulations Thank yet you. again, Chad. Congrats. <laughs> yes. It's awesome. Um, yeah, so I wanted to just address something which I feel like I've addressed before. Um, uh, and so I just wanted to... So that's why I'm kind of like hesitant to even spend a lot of time on it because I feel like certain things just pop up all the time in these books. Um, and I don't want to like beat a dead horse. And I think it's possible. I even brought this up in our last recording, Chad. So I need to like uh, try to figure out, you know, uh, you know, I guess we need to figure that out. So I don't want to like beat a dead horse. It's just what came to mind when I was reading uh, more closely this time. And that is a good chunk of chapter 10. Augustine is essentially wrestling with the what he takes to be, for lack of a better term, the weaknesses of the flesh, right? Um, and he kind of categorizes them. Like he talks about drink and he talks about food and he talks about the theater. And I know we've talked about all of those things. Um, he talks about sex and he talks to certain, to varying degrees about his, like, just as an example, kind of how many of these things are not his weaknesses per se, but he also addresses what he takes to be his weakness. But I wanted to focus on just a couple of things. One, he talked about sex, which of course he would have deemed uh, to be one of his kind of peccadillos or his, his weaknesses, his um, sinful inclinations. But he also talked about how he kind of, he was at a point now where he had mastered that side to a degree, like he didn't, he says he got rid of his concubine. That was easy, you know, making that decision. Um, but then he's lamenting uh, how his dreams, you know, lustful dreams. Um, he, he says here, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't give you guys addresses on this because there's no breakdown on my version. But he says, are you not mighty, God almighty, so as to heal all the diseases of my soul and by your more abundant grace to quench even the impure motions of my sleep. Um, you know, and so he's addressing, you know, the fact that even in his sleep, he doesn't have control over his sexual inclinations. And then he goes on later talking about food. And this is something that I thought super interesting. He, he talks about how um, food is so necessary for the body for strength but that there's this inclination to uh, gratify your flesh with food. And the, the, the takeaway I almost got from it 
he doesn't assert this directly, but I think the implication is, is that if you eat or drink for anything other than sustenance, you're sinning. Like eating for pleasure, drinking for pleasure is bad. That's kind of what I took from it. I mean, I, I don't know that he directly says that, but that seems to be the implication, right? He says um, uh, in this one section, he says, uh, what is enough for health is too little for pleasure. And often it is uncertain whether it be uh, whether it be the necessary care of the body, which is asking for sustenance, or whether a voluptuous deceivableness of greediness is proffering its services. In this uncertainty, the unhappy soul rejoices and therein prepares an excuse to shield itself, glad that it's a, that it appears not what suffices for the moderation of health, that under the cloak of health it may disguise the matter of gratification. Which, as I'm reading that, I'm like, why is it? Why is food, drink, or sex bad in the context of pleasure and gratification? Um, they're only for sustenance, health, and procreation, it seems to me, in the way he describes it. And so what I got thinking about is, you know, I, I don't know, just kind of working in the Twitter world and conversations I have with friends, there is this, what I take to be like a kind of a revisionist history that is looking at Christian fundamentalism or, or at least certain kinds of conservative evangelicalism from the past, you know, 30 years and identifying it as an anomaly in church history, like acting as if Christians and typathy or antagonism towards um, movies, television, the arts, food, drink, sex, as if like that exists in kind of this modern context. I mean, I've literally heard people say that this was like invented in the, the fundamentalist era post-1950s America. And it's just crazy to me because clearly throughout church history, you just have this, this tension in the church between people who, you know, are, for lack of a better term, I get that the word fundamentalist is new, but for lack of a better term, fundamentalist, right? They're, I guess if I want to define that, what I mean is, they're really strict in terms of what they what they they constitute as moral and justified and that that strictness focuses on food drink and sex and you know i guess you know also drugs and basically a limitation of what people tend to think of as fun and then there always seems to be an element in christianity that that steps in and says no 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 there's liberty and what are you doing this stuff can also be enjoyed as a christian and you guys are you guys are wrong, that there's this back and forth tension in this. And when I'm thinking about this, I just think about, you know, I go to Rome every year and I always hear, you know, these different uh, tour guides talking about um, Michelangelo's painting of the Sistine Chapel. And one thing that we always forget is, of course, um, much like the, the painting of Renaissance painters when they're painting nudes or sculpting nudes, there was a massively strong contingent in the church that was like, that's pornographic that's bad. Like in the Sistine Chapel, um, an artist insisted that clothes be painted on some of the nude characters, actually all of them. Um, and just depending on who was Pope, uh, you had kind of a back and forth of painting clothes on people or taking that off, you know? So it's like, this is just like this tension that exists in the church. And I think it's so funny that nowadays 
people are um, trying to make it like a new thing when it's just not. I don't really have a question with it. It's just a reflection. I was thinking of reading this and thinking about how, you know, there's, you know, I think people maybe feeling a little justified in, in um, not, you know, in kind of rejecting certain aspects of fundamentalism or evangelicalism by saying that they're new, that they're not a part of the historic faith. And I just think that's just not correct. There's just, this tension has always existed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's an interesting point. Yeah. I don't, uh, I mean, it's an interesting point. I don't. I was getting some. Uh, I was hearing my voice come back, um, but I think it's an interesting point. Um, I guess I would. I think, and I think you're spot on um, in terms of like lambasting uh, evangelicals. I mean, one thing that you might say that's somewhat new is it's evangelical. It's an evangelical subculture, and by that I mean literally not the dominant culture. Um, so for most of church, for like, I mean, from Augustine up until, um, let's say, uh, let's say at least the um, Reformation, there was sort of like in the West, there was one dominant Catholic culture. That was culture. Um, so you don't have people resisting culture so much, um, which is what um, evangelicals look like they're doing. They're resisting the, the real world. Um, the real world just was Rome. Um, for a thousand years. So the difference might be in the perspective of what is real, what is culture, and why are evangelicals sort of like, you know, like the, the people who would who would lambast them would say, well, you're just, you know, trying to shut yourself off from the world and from culture, um, which again would exactly be, I guess, what Augustine was trying to do, though. <laughs> um, Augustine wanted to set himself mm -hmm. off uh, from certain aspects of well, what he called, you know, uh, lust, right? So he's, I mean, the you you perfectly defined the First John two, you know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Um, you know, that is a mm -hmm. uh, a f formative and important um, part of all of this. Augustine is trying to reject all of those um, that concupiscence. Yeah, um, and so you yeah. have to, be which I think he he. he he mentions three levels of concupiscence. It must be from that first John passage, yeah, right? It is. It that's I mean, that's a critical passage yeah. for him. Um, you know, and but you're exactly yeah. I mean, you're still exactly yeah. right. I mean, really, the Catholic Church, although no one actually follows what uh the catechism actually teaches, right? I mean, this is in a sense, this is why you don't have uh why you, you should reject using um uh birth control. Um, cause sex is for procreation. <laughs> um, so you, there's no need for birth control. Um, and that's actually the Catholic church's teaching. Now, you know, it's usually converts that actually pay attention to it. Um, but you know what I mean? That, 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 that yeah. kind of sentiment exists in the church still. Yeah. That's would be considered sort of, uh, yeah. fundamentalist. Uh, but, um, Yeah, I, I wasn't reminded of fundamentalism. In fact, I was sort of just reminded of really conservative Catholics when I saw this passage. But that's a interesting thought, Tom. I but I, I, th I think it's a good well. I, I fundamentalism. Really... Yeah, well, I think fundamental. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, as far as I can tell, all fundamentalists are 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 a certain breed of Protestant living in America that essentially is very conservative on the issues of food, sex, drink, art. And that, you know, like to your point, Chad, about there just being the Catholic culture. I agree with you 
But I also think that there's more nuance in that. I mean, you did have a monolithic Catholic culture in a sense, but you also had tons of subcultures within that, you know, where it's like you have Savonarola in, in um, you know, the uh, 16th century in Florence, you know, doing the bonfire of the vanities, burning books and art and, and you know what I mean? Like in developing this huge following, yeah. you have, you know, the many of the different conflicts that arise through the Middle Ages. Like I think of kind of the, you know, Peter Abelard's of the Middle Ages versus the Bernard's of Clairvaux, right? Bernard's literally writing tracts and preaching against um, what he takes to be excesses in the church, you know, things like that. So it's like, it's not like it's monolithic. Um, they may not have had a term fundamentalist, but you still had people with the same, uh, who would band together even with the same kinds of uh, convictions, so to speak. Yeah, I've heard this term in some history books regarding uh, the early church as like there was the, I forget what they would call it, but basically like the, the established church that was public everyone had had a face but then there was the church of piety sort of beneath that church and certainly those people would be almost akin to the our idea of fundamentalists in that way because they were the ones that were like oh we're like actually living this christian thing out we're actually gonna do this whole thing and yeah yeah this is well you had the pietists right in the 17th century 18th century in germany um, you had the Puritans, right? I mean, you look at the English Civil War, one of the reactions against the Puritans after they had taken control and implemented the Republic was they abolished Christmas. And you know what I mean? Like the Puritans were just fundamentalists who were in government control, basically. And then after the English Civil War, you have the restoration of the monarchy. In comes, you know, everybody wants Anglicanism again in the Via Medea and let's not go so extreme again you know anymore you know what i mean so it's like yeah yeah i mean we so it's like i think but, but, all that to say i i think just this narrative that is popping up of speaking as if these are new things in christianity which just seems so patently untrue um but even monastic yeah. orders are a great example as well right like even in medieval times you had these you had certain movements of people saying hey whoa like we see this stuff in the scripture and they sort of went above and beyond. Um, oh yeah. So yeah, the Cluniac yeah, reforms. Yeah. Right. In the, I forget what century that was in the medieval France, but um, then of course, later on the, you know, the Franciscans and I mean, yeah, you got tons of, tons of stuff like this. Yeah. Oh, I was, right, I, was just, guys, I'm, I, I had I'm myself short muted. on time. Um, I said, yeah, we probably should let you go. All right. Well, I'm just... yeah.